morning, Glory America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings to everyone around the world. It is time, the music tells us, for the Hillsdale Dialogue. Once a week, I go very big, very long, very high with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues. He's been off sailing. Honest to goodness, I wish I had this trip. He's been going around the British Isles from May 31 to June 13th on the annual Hillsdale College cruise, going to Glasgow, Belfast, the Isle of Man. If you'd gone, if you'd told me, Dr. Arnold, I could have sent you to St. Field, which is the ancestral home of the Hewitts out there in Ulster. And then he ended up in, uh, in doing the Churchill tour through Blenheim Palace and Bladen and Chartwell, as well as London. But deeply disappointing to me, he went to the Gladstone Library of the National Liberal Club. I think maybe he's been turning to a Corbinite. Hello, Dr. Arn. <laughs> Corbinite. So first of all, if the I didn't I, I did not go of your to your ancestral home because I never heard of it. <laughs> no one has. It's a very it's a fork <laughs> in the road. It. Uh, so if the if the liber, if the Gladstone Liberals were alive today, you and I would be members of that party. It's oh, come. What about Disraeli? I thought Dizzy and I would, and you would be all together toasting well, were, each other. If they were alive today, we would be members of that party. The hard, the hard thing would be choosing between them. Uh, well, you know, they, they were both um, very strong abroad, right? They both had very uh, muscular foreign policies when they chose to be engaged. Neither of them were Palmerston, but they were both very muscular, which brings me to the first topic of the morning, which is not Boris Johnson versus Jeremy Hunt, though I'm going to get there because of your unique background. But the President of the United States uh, doing a U-turn on Iran, and I don't know if you've read the papers yet, Dr. Arn. I know you might have a little jet lag from your, your yeah. world travels. Exclusive Trump warned Iran via Oman that U.S. attack was imminent, called for talks. Iranian officials have rejected them. New York Times, Trump approved strikes on Iran, but then abruptly pulls back. Wall Street Journal, U.S. planned strike on Iran after downing of drone, but called off mission. What say you, Dr. Arn? Uh, well, uh, the first thing I say is that we don't know. Um, you know, the, uh, somebody's talking that, that Trump called for a strike and then said not. Uh, I haven't read anything that explains why, and I doubt if anybody knows why, if it, if it happened. Uh, I can only say uh, why one would do it and why one would be reluctant to do it. Uh, one would do it because they are engaging in state-sponsored piracy, in various ways in the in the in the Gulf, and they have threatened explicitly to close the Gulf. And if anybody's going to keep the Gulf open against them, we are. Uh, also, another reason you would do it is they say that they're going back to their nuclear program. Who knows how far advanced that is? But wouldn't this be a great time to whack them? Um, the reason's not. Um, uh, well, we have the example of Winston Churchill, who didn't want to get involved there after the Second World War and, uh, and, and after the First World War, too, for that matter. And uh, his idea was to get out of there as quick as we could. And remember, Britain had major oil possessions because the, the, uh, Churchill had made the, the distinction in, the, what, in 1912 to change the British fleet from coal-fired ships to oil-fired ships. And now those ships, oil-fired ships, were faster and could be refueled faster, and they were lighter. But Britain had lots of coal, and all the oil was in the Gulf. 
And so he set up the companies that later became, you know, they were later nationalized, but the uh, uh, Anglo-Arab Oil Company and, and, the, and about the same time the American Arab Oil Company that became Amoco. Um, so anyway, it's an important place, but what, it's also a hard place. The regimes are violent and terrible and unstable. The Iranians are the worst of all. We have a coalition of, you know, there's effectively the Arab world is split right now between the friends of, of, uh, of Saudi Arabia and the friends of Iran. And so we're on the side of the friends of Saudi Arabia. I wonder if they want us to attack. I wonder if they're afraid. Uh, I know that they're building up their military and getting American weapons to do it. So that's what, and that's a long-winded way of saying there's a lot of factors. I don't know which ones are prevailing. Now, I, I, I want to explore a little bit longer. If he had said nothing and done nothing, I would say nothing and, and would not be critical. Because Ronald Reagan said nothing four days after, for four days after a Iranian mine struck uh the United States ship in 1980, he said nothing, did nothing for four days. Then he sunk the Iranian Navy in about uh, uh, 12 hours. And so saying nothing, doing nothing keeps everybody nervous. But the president said big mistake, big mistake, big mistake. And all these press reports in fairly comprehensive detail, the sort of thing you can't keep. You can't keep secret when you've got air wings ready to go and missiles launched and loaded and then they stop. If, in fact, the reports are true, what message does that send? And I want you to couple that answer in regards to Churchill. Did he ever make public threats that he didn't follow through on? No. No. And um, so uh, you're right. This all just happened. And uh, I don't. So I haven't absorbed all the articles. Though I've read a few of them. Did, did Trump say out loud that he was going to attack them? Uh, let me play for you what he said. Uh, yeah. It is cut number... This is the first thing that he said, uh, cut number, you guys got it, the big mistake. Cut. Now, Ron made a big mistake. Uh, this drone was in international waters, clearly. We have it all documented. It's documented scientifically, not just words. And they made a very bad mistake. How okay? will you respond, Mr. President? How will you respond? You'll find out. You'll find out. You'll find out. I mean, obviously, 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 you know, we're not going to be talking too much about it. You're going to find out. They made a very big mistake. What do you think? Yeah, well, uh, I hope that he vindicates those words. Uh, And he, he, if he's listened to the man, he knows better than to make a threat and let it be empty. And so... Uh, one hopes that he will vindicate those words. Yeah, I'm just hoping I'm being head faked like uh, Patton in the north of England looking at Pot of Calais. I hope I'm in the stands on, on Monday morning eating crow and saying, boy, did Donald Trump fake me out? He's so unpredictable uh, because it's important to be unpredictable. I'm curious in your in your tour of Churchill sites across England, if Churchill's unpredictability and strategery came up. Oh, yeah. Well, we talked. So uh, I, I, I might state the occasion why we actually went to England on this trip. Uh, in 1962, Winston Churchill and his son Randolph launched what became the official biography of Winston Churchill. And it has, it has had the exclusive access to all of the Churchill papers. Uh, it, 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 it had that until about 1988 when the final narrative volume was finished. 
Uh, my, Randolph Churchill was the first biographer. Martin Gilbert, my teacher, was the, was his research assistant. Randolph died in '68. Martin Gilbert took over in '77. I went to work for Martin Gilbert. Met my wife Penny. Worked on it, and have been involved with it myself since 1977. And the thing is 57 years old. And about three weeks ago on a Sunday night at midnight, I finished it. Ah! <laughs> and it's. 15 million, if you count the narrative volumes and the document, the, the narrative volumes by themselves are 9,000 pages long. Churchill lived a really big life. And so these questions you're asking me, by the way, more than anyone who ever lived, we know the answer about Winston Churchill because he wrote everything down. Makes a virtue of that fact in memos, for example, to, to uh, Clement Attlee in 1946. The, the story is told the best in the documents. So first Randolph Churchill and then Martin Gilbert, and now I, I, what, I, what we've done at Hillsdale College, we are the publishers of this thing now. We've brought all the books back up to print. All 31 volumes can be punished, pu- pu- can be punished, purchased. can be published, and they be purchased from Hillsdale College, and there are e-books coming out, and so it's, you know, it's a huge thing, and I've been working on it for 40 years. You, you know what it reminds me of? Andrew Roberts has got a new book out on Napoleon, and it was only 10 years ago that Napoleon's 33,000 letters were published, so it was really only 10 years ago that scholars could really begin. That's right. And if you find, you know, Andrew Roberts has written that, you've had him on your show, that really fine biography. He came to our event in London. We had a We had a dinner to celebrate, and it was it worked because that—that's why you went to Gladstone's, the Gladstone Club. It's one of the most beautiful dining rooms All right, in the world. Uh, pause right there because I want to hear about the whole dinner uninterrupted because I can imagine it in my mind, and I'm sure that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't there, despite Gladstone Club being the source. <laughs> of, I'm sure he wasn't there. We'll be right back. Maybe Boris Johnson was there. We'll find out. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. All of my conversations with Dr. Arnon and his colleagues dating back to 2013. Available at hugh4hillsdale.com. But go watch the video course on Churchill that Dr. Arnon teaches. Congratulations to him on the completion of this epic undertaking. Don't go anywhere, America. Back America to here at the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway with Dr. Larry Arn, who is just back from a magnificent trip commemorating and recognizing the completion of the Winston Churchill official biography, both the narrative and the documents put to bed. And they went off sailing around London and then they had a great big dinner at the Gladstone Library, which I have never been to. So would you take four or five minutes and just t- set this up for us, Dr. Arn? So uh, I'll try to do that fast. Uh, between about 1840 and 1910, Britain became a broadly representative country, a democratic country. Before that, uh, the aristocracy had controlled much of it. And the two political parties that we've been uh, praising, or I've been praising them both, and the two leaders, uh, Disraeli and Gladstone, combined in opposition to each other and taking turns to make that transition. Winston Churchill's father was part of it, too. And so the Liberal Party and the Liberal Club came into prominence in the second half of, well, in the middle of the 19th century. And in 1882, the great uh, William Gladstone, the wonderful leader, he'd been a high Tory, and he switched 
and he found and he started a club. And by 1888, they had built one of the most important buildings of that age in London, right on the river, about a quarter of a mile from the Houses of Parliament, and it was the National Liberal Club. And there are hardly any national liberals today, but if the conservatives keep up what they're doing, there may be a lot of interest, because there might not be any conservatives. Uh, and and it's a beautiful, and you know, it, it, it's, it's magnificent. It's huge. It's, it's uh, you know, the, the dining room. Which part of town is, is it in? What? what Where ha- is it in London? Well, it's in, you know, it's in central London. It's, it's ha- a quarter of a mile from the Houses of Parliament, right along oh, the river. Oh, goodness. Oh, yeah. very goodness. And it's, uh, so you can walk, uh, you know, it's in Whitehall Place. We stayed there, too. There's a hotel right next to it. And uh, you, can, you can walk half a block, two blocks, a block, one full block, right, and you'll be in Horse Guards Parade. You didn't go near the window, did you? When Charles went near the window, they lopped his head off. Yeah, yeah. There you go. It. Uh, we didn't. I, I didn't. I did do that. Yeah. <laughs> if uh, and my head appears to be on, although not very well today. If uh, if and so this. It's it, it is a. It's a room with the the whole club is very beautiful. But this dining room is you know, fourteen feet high, wow. and got bookshelves floor to ceiling except for the windows all the way around. And we had about one hundred and sixty people, and the speakers were. Martin Gilbert's widow Esther and uh, Michael Dobbs, that is to say, Lord Dobbs of Wiley, who is the author of several historic, uh, historical novels about Winston Churchill and also of the TV show House of Cards. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, and he's a delightful man. And he's, you know, he's, if they let him run the Conservative Party, none of this would have happened. And, uh, and then Randolph Churchill, the great grandson. Spoke and I spoke and grand the great great grandson's a charming man looks exactly like somebody like who comes from Winston Churchill and uh, and they have been the Churchill family and Randolph in particular they've been the partners that we've done all this work with for so long. You know, I, I once heard you talk about Churchill at a dinner commemorating his visit to the California Club, an exact recreation of the dinner, and it was one of the most wonderful after-dinner talks. Uh, you don't want evenings like that to end. I'm just curious, when did it end? How late did you go? Uh, it was it was uh, almost rudely late. It went till almost 10, and then there was drinking and talking after. Very and Churchillian. And it was a bunch of, see, remember that we had like 130 Americans, so I began the thing. I had quite a bit to say because I did it um, among the people who are still alive. Anyway, I began by saying this is a terrifying moment for me, I said, because I've got these English here, and I've got these Americans here, and I've got my in-laws here. (laughs) (laughs) That is, that is a very uh, intimidating <laughs> gathering. Yeah. yeah, they were in the in-laws, you know, so I, I did. I, the next morning, I thanked our group, the people who were on our cruise, uh, for helping me impress my in-laws. I'm coming right back with Dr. Larry Arndt. We're going to talk about Gladstone, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Hunt, Jeremy Corbyn, and all of his buddies in England, because it's a mess. Hopefully, Boris will sort it all out. We'll talk with Dr. Arndt on this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Meanwhile, head over to hillsdale.edu, hillsdale.edu for all things Hillsdale. I'll be right back. Stay tuned.
Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hilltale College. This is the Hilltale Dialogue. Once a week, the last radio hour of the week, we go very high and very deep in some subject matter. Sometimes we are in the current headlines and we are watching President Trump's U-turn with great interest. But we are also watching British politics. I think it's just poetic justice that your trip to London coincided with a leadership election for the for the Tories that has ended up with Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson after alleged allegations that Boris Johnson's whip people used the dark arts to knock Michael Gove out of the final runoff. Uh, Jeremy Hunt looks like James Bond, sounds like James Bond to Americans. Boris Johnson, I don't quite know what to make of. Uh, what was your assessment of these goings on and what do you think is going to happen next, Dr. Larry Arndt? Uh, well, I'm for Boris for two reasons. Uh, myself, one, because people I know in London whose opinion I respect are for him. And we're for him last time, by the way, uh, when Theresa May was made the one. Uh, and I'm also for him because he has a record now. He's made a public record of standing for Brexit. And that means he quit the May government over that subject and put his political career at risk. And so that means he's – and he was for it during the campaign, too – and he's a colorful guy who wrote a you know a pretty good biography of Winston Churchill, and uh, and and he's the only hope. I mean, Hunt, who is not so well known and not so committed about this, he could come out and be a fireball, but they have to. The reason I think Boris is going to win is that they really have no choice. The the remainers among them. <laughs> as against the levers, they both have to look out on the world and see that there's no conservative party unless they get out. And there's no real option to get out except to be prepared to just walk out, which is what I thought that they should have done a year ago. Uh, and so, you know, because why? Because the conservatives... You know, most of whom, I mean, the elected members of the Conservative Party and almost all of the cabinet, they were on the side of remain in the EU. But A, the country voted for it by four percentage points, 52-48. And that's close, but that's, that's a victory. And then the great majority of the conservative constituencies voted for it. And that means that they called this election, and David Cameron, the previous conservative PM, actually called for a referendum to try to get this thing put to bed because the United Kingdom Independence Party, under Nigel Farage, who's a very colorful man, uh, was eaten away at their vitals. And now it's worse. I mean, if you just look at the opinion polls, the new party, whose name has escaped me, that Farage has started. I think it's called the Brexit Party. They're just growing. Right. And 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 the conservatives have sunk to a low point. Well, Cameron said the only right way to solve this is a referendum. And he called for an election and then it didn't go the way he wanted. So he did the right thing and resigned and and said that he would now support uh, exit leave. And and Theresa May, who'd been a remainer, as Cameron was, also said she would do it. But, you know, she's done it so ham-fistedly. I mean, if Donald Trump has, uh, has had a, fa um, a public failure of nerve, first of all, I don't believe that. It'll need proving. But that would be devastating to him because he has nerve. And, uh, and so if he's lost it over this, 
you know, that'd be terrible. But uh, Theresa May, she she did everything exactly wrong. First from all, the beginning, I want yeah. to emphasize, from the first day when they said we have to have a deal. Yeah, she just, you know, she delivered herself. They have every reason to punish her. Because why? Europe is full of political parties that make up considerable minorities in a country or two, majorities, that want to get out of the European Union. And they're worried about that because it's a big bureaucracy and nobody likes that kind of thing. And so... They've, they've got to show, if they can, that it's foolish to vote to get out. It'll hurt you, see? So they're trying to punish them. Well, once you understand that, and if you just read the paper one day, you'll understand that's what they're going to do. Then what you do if you, if, after the vote passes is, okay, we're going. I'm giving notice. Here's the day. And, and just say that. And, then and you're not passed, getting the $38 billion or $38 yeah, billion yeah. Pounds that you asked for and we accommodatingly agreed to. And if they say, if they say, you know, I mean, before any talk of that money, they just should have said, I'm given notice on this day and we'll be out on this day and stop. And then the press says, well, what are the terms of the deal? And you say the terms of the deal are. The British people, a sovereign people, have voted to go, and we're going. And they'd say, what do you need from the European Union? And you say, nothing. Nothing. And then they say, well, they want to talk to you. And you say, great, love to talk to them. That, that is what should I, Well, maybe Boris will do that. I, I note the Times of London this morning has Tory leadership. The only way Jeremy Hunt can beat Boris Johnson is to run against him on character, which leads me. I don't think he's going to beat him. Uh, Boris is, has had an interesting private life. I'll put it that way. I read last night a fascinating analysis that compared Jeremy Corbyn to the Roundheads and uh, Boris Johnson to the Cavaliers and that there's a considerable streak in England that likes their royals or their prime ministers to be, and if not licentious, then loose. They, they do not mind it so much. Uh, is that true? Well, um, Colorful, I think, is yeah, what they said. It, it, I mean, it, I, so first of all, I don't think that people are making up their minds about this, about things like that. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson has weird hair. Do you know any other world leader has that? No. And, and so it's, <laughs> just, uh, just down the road here. Yeah. yeah so it's uh, so I you know I I think that people are looking now because this this is disgraceful, right? It's a national embarrassment whether you're a lever or a remainer, and so so they're looking for somebody who will do something decisive. And I think that people, I think that the you know the members of Parliament, how are they going to decide? Well. Their charge is they want to, they're supposed to try to keep their seats. And so they've got to be listening to their constituencies. And the constituencies think that this is disgusting. And, and so they need to do something strong. And they've got to figure out who's going to do that. Now, to the, to the Tory 160,000 members, some of whom were at your dinner at the Gladstone Library, I'm that's sure. Right. That's uh, right. You know, one, by the way, one of the members of the House of Lords who came is a remainer and was in the House of Commons, I won't say his name, for 30 years. And uh, Michael Dobbs, who spoke, and Jamie Borick, who spoke, Lord Borick, uh, Borick, you say it. Um, you know, they're big uh, leavers, and that's one reason why I know them. And, uh, and so, that, you know, they were, 
So there was just, you know, there was a difference of opinion at our dinner about that. And that, well, that, you know, that's like Trump divides every room you go into for the same reason. But I come back to this point after voting to leave, David Cameron resigned, but the members of parliament put forward Theresa May and they selected a remainer who pretended to be a leaver. Jeremy Hunt was a remainer who now is committed to leaving. You would think, wouldn't you, that having done that twice, you don't do it again. That's why Boris is in the lead, see. And they they probably, you know, because it's, you know, remember, we get the virtue of being wise after the fact, although, of course, we always know better even before. But um, on the day when that happened, when the election went the way it went, that was shocking. You know, they knew it was going to be close, and they were astonished at that. Yeah. Right, and then it came out the way it came out. That was shocking, and so of course Theresa May looked like somebody who would do it as gently as possible, and that's where the fault lies. They didn't understand that that was dangerous, and uh, because these guys, you know, first of all, these guys are power brokers, right? What? How do you climb to the top of the bureaucracy in the European Union? Is it like you pass a test at Sunday school and get gold stars on your report? Right. You know, are you yep. good at the use and organization of power? Because that's what this thing is about. And so, and, it, and it's not, you have to remember, the decisive force in the, in, the, in the halls of the European government, as it's become, is not public opinion, because it's almost impossible to measure that. Right. Well, it's it's actually perpetrate. You know, it's it's public choice theory. They're always making decisions based on their own perceived best interest. And the parties of Europe that are, quote, conservative are, in fact, no longer conservative. Angela Merkel is not a conservative. She's a bureaucrat. Yeah, that's right. And she's not. And, and, you know, another thing is, if you they know there's a lot of dissent out there, but the dissent can only be organized through the foreign ministers and prime ministers of the constituent countries, because they are the only effective representation of their countries. And, you know, remember, the European Union has not been formed by popular vote. The Constitution of the United States was ratified by state-ratifying conventions elected for the purpose by the people. This is not that way. This is formed by a bunch of international treaties where the people in most of the places, by the way, where, where, where people are actually asked to vote on the Constitution that currently rules Europe, it failed. And so you that's know, why they did it by treaty. You ought to be teaching this and the history behind it inside the Beltway, not just in Michigan. You ought to be bringing credentialed teachers who can bestow degrees upon students who follow a designed core curriculum to teach them the lessons of history and the dangers of this. You ought to be doing this inside the Beltway, Dr. Arndt. Well, you know, that's a really great idea. Maybe we'll start a graduate school in, on Capitol Hill and uh, at our Washington, D.C. campus, and maybe we'll do that come August of this year. Well, wouldn't that be something wouldn't we're talking about? You've got to go see Matt Spaulding now and <laughs> tell him, I told you and he could do that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know what, you know... Probably Matt has a very good reason for what he does, but I seldom know what it is. It's very hard to discern, but I just <laughs> listen to him and nod and then and then talk to the to the, the, the number one and the number two. You're like he's like the Chancellor of the Exchequer to you. Who wants to be Boris's Chancellor, by the way? That's gonna be it's not, we got less than a minute. That's gonna be the hardest job in the government, isn't it? Yeah, well I, you know, it's 
it's a mess, right? And I think the conservatives are going to take a drubbing, whatever they do. And I, I and I think, but you never know. Morris could hit a homer and become. And, and don't you invite Nigel into the cabinet? Don't yeah. you do that? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, you you need they're good. So you know, let's say they're. It would be wrong of me to talk about my families, my family. But professional people in London, the kind of people who know MPs, they're almost all Remainers, right? It's just regular people. You know, like people who voted for Trump over here, most of them are leavers, right? And most of them, that's the backbone of the Tory party. So Farage will offend, uh, you know, I'll, let's say I had uh, some conversation with my in-laws. I had a drink after this dinner, and I made some points about Brexit, and they see it in a new light, you know, and I, we've been talking about it off and on since since it happened. But professional London and the South, they don't want to go. And that's the people, that's like, you know, the biggest and greatest city in the country is also the place where the government is. That's different from America. See? To which we respond, this is a, this is a, a, a sovereign country led by the people. Yeah. Dr. Larry Arndt, Hillsdale.edu, more coming up next week. Thank you, my friend. Hillsdale.edu for knowledge and news about events and unfolding uh, happenings on Capitol Hill. Stay tuned.